Welcome to Season 2 of the Shopstool Podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is Episode 20, Season 2 of the Shopstool Podcast. So as always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? Very good. Robin, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. And Brian, how's it going? I'm doing really well, Robin. Thanks, mate. How are you? That's good, that's good. Yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well. Good. So my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. Um, Today, we have another guest on the show. Um, That's two weeks in a row. This time, a local chairmaker from Melbourne, best known for his Windsor chairs. He uses both modern and traditional techniques, something I'm I'm really keen to get into um, in the show. Um, And I think above all, he's just really well known in the woodworking circles of Australia. So a very big welcome to Bern Chandley. Thanks very much for being on the show. How are you today? Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very well, thank you. All things considering... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. So, um, as, as I mentioned, I think the, anyone who's in work, woodworking in Australia will have heard the name Burn Chandley at some point in, in time. Um, but for those of, uh, of our listeners who haven't, um, if you could just give us a, a quick rundown of, of sort of what you do, maybe where you came from, that kind of thing, Burn. Okay, well, uh, these days I concentrate mainly on making chairs. Um, and as you mentioned, they're Windsor-style um, chairs. Um, I tend to do less traditional and more contemporary designs these days, just my own designs, um, which I find a lot easier these days. I used to do a bit of bespoke work, and as you guys probably know, doing bespoke work can be pretty labour-intensive and you don't always get the reward back for, you know, all the development and everything you've done. So um, having my own designs and, you know, basically that's what is one... Sorry, that's what's on the website. Um, so right. people know what I make and I know how to make it. Um, makes life simple. Um, yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I still do um, what I call flat furniture. Um, I'm actually just started on a couple of bedside tables. So I've got a dining table coming up. Um... And I enjoy doing that every now and then. Sometimes it's good to work in right angles rather than oh, like yeah. different compound angles. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah. look, I really love making chairs. I'm pretty devoted to it. Interesting way yeah. to put it because I guess when you've been working with curves, 90 degrees is, is simple. So have you always, I mean, has woodworking been something that you've always been interested in? I mean, have you been doing it as long as you can remember? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I started, I'm from a family of trades. My dad's one of nine kids and everyone, um, is a trades person. So then dad was a, um, fitter and turner diesel mechanic, but he also built our house and did any renovation that came along over the years. And, um, so I first started, you know, doing woodwork in the garage at the back. Um, but I did left school at, um, 16 and started a carpentry joinery apprenticeship. And um, so that's where my sort of professional woodworking um, life began. Um, and I just gradually segued over the years. I've done a few different things. I mean, I did quite a bit of construction, house construction mainly, um, but segued across to film sets, which was fun for a while. Um, and then through that, I went into furniture making um, and then chair making. 
That's cool. I did my apprenticeship back in the dark. It was like the 1980s, so, you know, basically <laughs> how old I am. <laughs> you talk about on your website quite a bit as the modern versus traditional methods. Um, is that something that you've found has changed your your, your sort of, I guess your process of building a chair quite drastically because if you go on your website you see all these amazing videos of all the, the tools and jigs that you're using um, has your entire workflow changed quite substantially moving from one to the other or do you are you sort of bouncing to back and forth from them at, at all times uh, so the way I learned I learned um, from Peter Galbert an American chairmaker um, I was working at a woodworking school out here um, and he came over um, and I assisted and was able to sit in and do the class as well. And the way he was teaching was very traditional. It's all hand tools. It's, everything's done by hand, pretty much, um, which I absolutely loved. Um, but it's not really a practical way of making chairs for a living. Um, I think um, if you're trying to make them for a living, you've got to, as you guys know, there's... I think with time, you've got to get it out there. Yeah. So I just, um, over a period of time, um, I've just gradually sort of modernised some of the processes um, just to make it all a little bit quicker, really. Um, and that is a constantly changing thing. You know, I, I, it's not static for me. I don't feel settled on any of the processes I'm using. If something new comes up, I'm happy to adopt it. But at the same time, I never want to be um, churning them out as if I'm in a factory. So yeah. there's still a lot of handwork on them because I think that's important. Bern, when you're talking about modernising and sort of using more modern tools, you're saying like to do grunt work and things, like using things like Arbitac, like carving planes and things like that, but all the finishing, all the shaping is all your hands. That's right. I mean, if there's a lot of material to... Yeah. Yeah, the basic idea is that if there's a lot of material to use, I'll use a machine when I can. So um, as yeah. you mentioned, I'm an architect for carving out the bowl or for doing big undercuts, I'll use the bandsaw. Yeah. yeah. And I'll sort yeah. of just make supporting jigs for that. I usually try and keep my jigs pretty simple. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you can become a master jig maker or you can make furniture for a living. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all my jigs look a little bit ugly and a little bit underdone. Because it's always, I get to the point where it's working, I go, I'll fix it up later, and I never do. Ten years later, I'm still using the same jig, you know. So, Bern, are you, are you mainly taking orders for, like, one or two kind of, uh, side chairs or are people ordering whole like eight to 12 chairs at a time and how does that affect um, how, how your workflow goes uh, if I've got a, um, a dinner setting to do um, I'll do all the particular tasks you know together yeah. so I'll carve all the seats together I'll do all the turning together all the steam bending together all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and just try and keep it really organised yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah mainly it's um, twos and ones um, people like right. side chairs, um, armchairs and things like that. And so even if that's the case and they're different types of chairs, I'll still do all the seat carving and all the turning together and all that sort of stuff, even, you know, okay. different turnings or whatever. Just while your brain's in the right mode, do it, do it while it's fresh. Yeah, and it's just sort of keeping a one-man operation moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, trying to drag everything along with you. I mean, sometimes it makes sense just to focus on one particular thing. If it's a little bit more involved, then perhaps it's good just to concentrate on that one thing and not get dragged away from it. So I, I tend to mix it up a little bit. It just really depends on um, mm-hmm. 
time, I guess, you know, if something really, really needs to get done because it's taking a little while to get to, um, which can happen in a one-man workshop. Yeah, because I guess you've got the classes running as well, so you're constantly juggling that time. I mean, is, is... is does one get priority over the other or do you just find you're busier in one area than the other to be honest i'm still coming to grips with that because i just started the classes back here in australia last year i'm having taught one with pete over in america and um i found it very difficult to be honest um just judging when to start jobs and actually just trying to get stuff finished because all of a sudden a class would be upon me and i'd have to stop everything and prepare Mm -hmm. prepare for the class and teach the class and um, then madly try and get things done in between the classes. But, um, yeah, I, I, by the end of the year, I felt like I had a bit of a train wreck of um, <laughs> orders up behind my head that I had to get done. Right. So, you know, people are pretty patient, but, you know, you don't want people to wait for too long. I was going to say, have you found that now that you've had some time with a couple of classes up your sleeve, have you found that it's worthwhile? I mean, obviously, teaching is a worthwhile thing, but it also has to pay the bills. And and is, do you think it's something that is worthy of the time? Because I've done a little bit of teaching, and I've found it's a complete drain and essentially a waste of time monetarily. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, like it, it is. It's definitely worthwhile. Um, Right. I, I actually really enjoy doing it because like a lot of us, um, I spend most of my time on my own in the workshop. Um, so having an influx of people who have different ideas and different perspectives on woodworking, um, all different levels of experience, I, I find really engaging. Um, and I always learn a lot from them as well. It's it's always a two-way um, street. Um but yeah, no, it's, it's, well, let me put it this way. Uh, last year or the year before, it was the year before, um, I was at Bungendore for the Studio Woodworkers um, Awards and Brian, you were there and who else? Some of you, someone else was yeah, there. Yeah, I was up there. Oh, I remember you, Brian. Who, who, were you guys there at all? I wasn't there. No. no. So anyway, there's all these amazing furniture makers from around Australia. Some of I've been... I've heard their names for, you know, years and never met them sort of thing and um, highly experienced, amazing furniture makers and all of them to a, a, a single person taught to, you know, make things work for their furniture making business. So it actually, for me, has turned into it acts like um, economic pillars throughout the year mm-hmm. because it's, it's a steady income. You know, I know cool. when that money's coming in because people have paid their deposits and, you know... Yeah. Um, and I know when those things are going to happen because, you know, I mean, the cash flow otherwise for furniture makers, it's, it can be pretty up and down, you know. You can yeah. have a big bundle on the way, but you've got to get stuff done to do it. And in the meantime, mm. you're sort of eating your fingernails. So, yeah. <laughs> so Brian, you obviously put us um, in touch with Burn. You were sort of the, the link between, you know, to make this call happen. Where do you, where's, what's your history with Burn? Where do you know Burn from? Um, I'm trying to remember the first time I met Byrne. I think it was at another furniture thing, maybe. Well, it was through Handcrafted, that's right. Yeah, we were both at, uh, exhibiting at Den Fair on the same stand under under the Handcrafted banner. And, um, yeah, like I obviously knew his stuff and knew he was a bit of a guru of the Australian woodworking scene. And I just find him so open to be able to go up and talk to and just no chip on his shoulder and... It was mm. a bit of a different world for me coming from architecture and 
seeing major <laughs> chips on shoulders to uh, <laughs> to to being able to go and exhibit as a young maker alongside somebody like that and just find him so open to to sharing and sharing his knowledge it was it was a real real nice change for me they were actually good times doing that stuff because uh, like I was saying before we spend most of our time on our own so when we do get the opportunity to get together and have a natter it's yeah. it's good fun it is mm. yeah yeah but I think I think your attitude is really infectious as well and it it changes the way like having somebody like you not at, I'm not going to say at the helm but having like <laughs> established <laughs> like having an having an established <laughs> having an established maker that's got your kind of attitude spreads through the whole scene and it's definitely made me if I get any emails of young people asking me questions about my business I'll I'll try to take the the time to give them a proper response because that's the sort of thing that you grant other people. That's not always easy either, is it? No, it's not. It's not. And it does eat into your time, but I know the importance of it. Um, and so, yeah, it's a real, it's a really nice pay it forward thing. And yeah, it's just, it's great to have you on the show because I know that so many people must have questions for, for somebody like yourself. And this is a, an easy way to share it with, with, yeah. um, with more people. No, thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. No, I, look, I mean, I, I really enjoy got the contact with other makers, you know, and that's probably been the best thing about Instagram, besides providing, you know, um, free advertising for all of our small businesses that yep. we would have had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars otherwise for the same amount of PR. Yeah. And, you know, we've all got um, powers across the world now who are doing what we do and... Um, doing it all sorts of different ways and making all sorts of different things. And um, that connection is, has been quite powerful, I think. It sort of urges us all on. Um, it's very inspiring. I would also say to anybody looking to market their stuff, really go and have a look at the way um, Byrne runs his social media. It's not uh, glossy shots on white backgrounds. Yeah, It's showing how things are made and that's adding the value into the piece, you know, so... It's it's just the engagement that he gets off his posts is is probably better than uh, I'd say ninety five percent of makers out there. <laughs> Not as good as Beyonce, but you know. <laughs> well, that um, that video that you did uh, with the submerging the um, the your stock in PVC burn, that was one of the first videos that I saw that I, so I actually got to see you as a person. And I just, that was, that was so funny because as, as Brian was saying, you know, we see makers putting glossy furniture on white backgrounds and like, you just have this image in your head of this person being a real hipster, very cool, (laughs) unapproachable. And you put that video on and went, well, this is not the person I thought that I was going to be seeing. So it was amazing. It was very, very humanizing. Definitely not cool. (laughs) Just ask my son. (laughs) You can tell it's one of Burns' pictures when you're just zooming through Instagram. And my first thought is, do you clean up the workshop to take the picture? Like your bench space and everything <laughs> always looks immaculate. Sometimes you get shavings and you're actually in the middle of doing work, but often you've just put your finished chair on the, on the bench. And I'm like, there's no way that he's just finished work. This, <laughs> unless you're like really, really cl- a clean guy in, in a hand tool shop. Well, look, uh, uh- to be honest, I, I am pretty clean, um, and right. I got that from my apprenticeship. Um, I had a complete hard ass of a boss, um, and even though he was a psycho, he imparted some good lessons to me. <laughs> and one of those was sort of clean up after yourself before you start a new job. Yeah. So, 
the fact is, by the time I've got to the point where I want to take a photo of it, I've sort of got a little assembly bench um, over the other side of the room. And so I probably would have done the finish on there sort of thing. So I take it back to right. the bench and there's nothing there. But yeah. the funny thing with my photos is um, I learnt my lesson from an old lady, an elderly lady um, who wanted to buy a rocking chair from me um, some years ago. And um, when I asked her, you know, where did you hear about me? She said, um, oh, I saw you on Instagram. I nearly <laughs> fell over because at that time I, I had no real idea what Instagram was about. I was just putting photos on going, who the hell is looking at these? You know? yeah. <laughs> and they were terrible. You know, I had fluoro lights on, there were dirty rags in the background and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I may clean up a little bit sometimes because um, people are very fussy about what they want to look at these days. There's so much content online um, that if your photos are, are completely crap, it almost hurts people's eyes and they just will flick past you. You know, mm. so you got to have to do have to make a little bit of an effort, and it's not much yeah. of an effort for free PR, really, is it? You know, so I just I just turn the lights off. It's the main thing yeah. I do. So it's natural light. Yeah, you've got really nice natural light in there. It's nice shadows. I really like <laughs> how it looks. Yeah, because I guess it's not even about having it's not even about having rubbish in the background. It's just about making sure that your the eye is drawn to exactly what you want. You know, the viewer to see and only that. Because as Joey, as you said, when you're flicking through, I mean, you've got split seconds to catch someone's attention on Instagram. So, yeah. no, that's right, that's right. People are very impatient these days. So you might have <laughs> thousands of followers, but you know, you might get a post that only gets like 80 likes or something like that, and you think, ah, oh, well, what's going on with that? I worked ages on that joint. <laughs> uh, you guys are at least in the rest of the world are lucky. You get to see how many likes and stuff you get. Instagram are, are testing over here and see we, we don't get to know how many people like posts and stuff. Oh, you don't get it in New Zealand yet. Yeah. So, so you can mm. see it on yours though, right? Uh, so yeah, you- on mine because I'm a business, I can, I can look in and see how each post goes. But generally, you, you just get to see a couple of people's names who have liked it, but you don't get a, a total number of, of hearts. Well, not even it, even yeah. on your own stuff? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Oh, we actually we've changed the same thing. Like, so the public don't know how many yeah. likes each of our photos get. That changed, right. I think, a year, okay. year and a half ago here. So yeah, I think we're the same as right. NZ. I, I we, we can see, we can see how many people have liked our posts. Yeah, I can yeah. only do that if I I go into like the business part of it, part of my my post. Oh, okay. I think it might. Yeah, I think it might be the same. Yeah, because that was a big hoo-ha when that happened, hey? Jeez, there was, <laughs> yeah, was I don't, all over the don't really care, but it's, like, it's just an odd thing. Because for some people, that's their currency. Yeah. You know? <laughs> How many hearts have you got? The, or the yeah. yoga instructors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got a, a, a bunch of questions. Um, Joey, did you have anything in particular that you wanted to, to get into? Uh, my, uh, after, so in lockdown, I've just been doing um, a bunch of, a, li- a small amount of hand-tool-only stuff. And so I've always been pretty hand tool focused in my work. I'll, I'll use hand tools where I can, but I think a bit like you, Ben, if there's a faster way to do it with the machine, that's what's going to happen to pay the bills. So in this lockdown period here, I've done my first like 100% hand tool only piece. And I've found getting a surface finish that I'm really happy with or used to seeing is, is quite dif- difficult. And I was wondering, are your chairs uh finished right off the tool or are you doing any sanding afterwards no no i always sand 
You are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I use scrapers and everything like to get a, an initial good surface sort of thing, but um, I just finished with 180, though. I'm, yeah. I'm not yeah. doing anything crazy like going up to 400 or anything like that. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, I, look, I, I just I don't see sandpaper as anything other than another tool, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, look, if I, if I was a, a hobbyist woodworker and I was just doing it for fun, then maybe I'd just try and do it all off um, the tool. Um, mm-hmm. that, that said, there are some parts of my chair, chairs that um, are just off the tool, like, say, the undercut after I sort of... I cut it on the bandsaw, but I do all the finished shaping by hand, so I'll leave that, the tool marks for that, the tool marks under yeah. the handholds and things like that. Um, I'll just leave those things because they're kind of tactile and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's nice. You know, I, I hand plane the bottoms of the seats before I assemble the, the undercarriage. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. But for the top surfaces, um, yeah, I, I think sanding, it just evens yeah. things up so beautifully. Exactly. <laughs> Why wouldn't you, you know? Yeah. Just, but if you're making them commercially, you're just crazy not to. I, well, yeah. you're not crazy. You, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, I... I agree. I agree. If I had had if I had had any sandpaper with me, I would have definitely been using it. I just I just didn't have some for the last couple of weeks. So I thought, well, I'll try it the old school way, and it's bloody hard. <laughs> no, look, you, you can do it, and I know people who have done it. Um, but it's just one of those things that would take an enormous amount of practice. Yeah. You know, um, my friend Shinobu um, Kobayashi, a Japanese friend of mine, um, he's been living in Australia for a long time now, though. But um, He's a highly skilled furniture maker and he finishes some things by hand. But, it, you know, I, I've, we've shared workshops before and um, watching him set up his carners and everything like that in preparation, the sharpening and everything, and then doing it as well, it's just such a careful process because these are mm-hmm. the finished cuts and there's not going to be anything else. And the finish is it's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. Like, you're not going to get anything as crisp as that with sandpaper. No. But... It's a particular thing that he's doing it's for a particular sort of furniture or something like that. You just don't have to do it with everything, you know. Yeah, mm. I, I think um, hand hand tools can get a little bit fetishized. I, I mean, as can yeah. power tools, you know, mm-hmm. like all the Watkin nuts around the place and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I, it's great. I, I love um, people who are passionate about something and go and find out everything about it. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, but it's just got nothing to do with being a professional furniture maker. No. Yep. You just kind of... Professional furniture makers probably often have the worst tools, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I worked in a band venue um, in my 20s and um, all the inner city bands had terrible sticky-taped instruments, but all the guys who lived in the suburbs who were in metal bands and stuff like that and worked as bankers during the day, they come in and have these amazing <laughs> setups, like these huge drum kits and the most amazing guitar you've ever seen in your life, sort of thing. You know, so it's a little bit like that. Yeah, that's true. That's it's, true. It's very romantic, though, the, just the, the picture of a, a, an, an old man who's got his 400-year-old whatever it is, and he's the only person in the world who knows how to set it up and, and tune it. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a, a magic about that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm working on some steam bending at the moment. Uh, Burn, that's something that you've massively influenced me with as well. It certainly helped me out with, with what I've been doing. And the, the timber that I'm using, I'm using two different types of timber, and I'm using a number of strips with, 
in my, my process. And I've bent them all, and they've all sprung back differently. So I, I really wanted to get your opinion on Springback, I guess, how you, how you deal with it, and is there a way to almost eliminate it entirely? Uh, so you, did you say strips of wood? Well, they, it's 20 by 30, so I, I guess strips is a bit loose. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Um, it, it's basically in the drying process uh, is where you eliminate Springback. So um, you've got, I have bending forms and then I have drying forms. So the bending form um, is basically, you know, your negative of the shape you're bending to. Um, but the inside of the bend is in complete contact with that form. So unless you take it off that, you're going to get uneven drying. So the, the, you've got to get it off that and put it onto a drying form so that the um, air flow can get into the evenly to the inside of the bend and to the outside of the bend and the top and the bottom. Um, because I'll leave it out overnight. Um, and then I'll put it into a dry box that's got a um, oil heater in there because you can leave those on safely for days on end. Yeah. Um, some people use spotlights and stuff like that, but I find they're a little bit too powerful and a bit dangerous for my liking. You know, I, they're very effective, but I just prefer this. It's a tiny little um, oil heater. Um, yeah. And my dry box is set up like a chimney, so everything sort of sets up above the heater. Um, and it, then I've just got a couple of holes in the top, so it releases the moisture. Um, so if I put it in there, you know, for three or four days, um, depending on the size of the bend, it's got to have that airflow. If I just put it in the bending form and pu- pulled it out, it always gets some spring back. It may not be a lot, depending on how long I've left it in there, but if I put it in there on a drying form where the airflow gets all around to the inside of the bend as well, it'll cling to the form as I'm trying it off. If anything, it'll even close up a little bit. Oh, wow. That's you see, awesome. this is the gold... And this is why we need to have more specialists on the show because this is something I would never be able to learn anywhere else. That's amazing. Had never, had never even thought of that. That's, that's so, wow. Your drying form is it essentially so? Um, this might be difficult to explain. So, how are you maintaining the shape and maintaining airflow to the back of the uh, of the piece? So, if you bend the piece and then just leave it on for half a day. It's not going to go all wriggly. It's not all soft. No. It's only soft while yeah, it's still yeah. hot. So yeah. once it's cooled off to the touch, you can move it over to quite safely to um, a drying form. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit of a shit fight, you know, because you've got a uh, compression strap on there and everything like that. So it's just sort of like putting a clamp on here and undoing one here and peeling everything off. And um, it, it's not that hard, but you just can't get used to doing it. And, and then I, I've just got a clamp sitting on the bottom of it after I've removed yeah, the yeah. Um, strap. Um, and I just loosened it off a little bit to get it off the form, um, the bending form. And the drying form is the exact same width down where the clamp's going. So it only requires one, one clamp, basically, down the bottom. And is the drying form just slimmer or have you got relief cuts or something in it to allow air to flow around I the workpiece? They are the most ugly, simple-looking things you've ever seen. <laughs> right. you know. I mean, for the critics... They're, they're just a T, aren't they? Yeah, it's just a T made yeah. out of um, 90 by 45 pine. Right. Screw tape. Okay. Uh, that's just a, just a very basic three points of contact. I've got yeah. a oh, screw okay. to block right. in where it needs yeah. to be a bit fatter. Yeah, if you go over my feed, you'll, you'll see those. Yeah. Um, but for, for crinoline stretches, it's even simpler. I just get a strip of whatever's around and just clamp that either end, like clamp mm. the bejesus out of it. Right. 
uh, and then right. just release it and it, it just stays like that, you know. Of course. You, yeah. you do have to be aware, though, when you're clamping things to um, a drying form and then putting them in the dry box, the wood's going to shrink. So mm-hmm. you do have to be aware of maybe, maybe go back, you know, before you go home and just tighten right. up the clamps a little bit. And also you don't want to put the clamps onto the piece where that's going to be used. I always have mm. excess on the ends of um, whatever I'm bending because the wood is really, really soft when you get it out of the steamer. Um, and some of those, if you clamp the hell out of it, it goes deep. It can <laughs> clamp really deep. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know from experience, trying to scrape something out, it's going, this thing goes, must go to the other side. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've had that. Now, with the, you were talking about the, putting the strap on the two ends, so if it's just a curve, an arc with the strap on the two ends. Does that timber then not tend to want to find its own neutral point? Like it's... Like if you consider you've got a, a very tight curve and then two long strips on either side, if you just link those together, will it not form more of a, a gentle curve? Does it, or does it not really... Oh, sorry, you know, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by adding um, things on the end. Are you talking about putting... Um, you've got a straight piece of wood and you put your compression strap on with the blocks on the end, the compression blocks? Well, you were talking about with drying, so an easy... An easy way to dry is you just join the two ends with some kind of strapping. Uh, no, no, I, I use like a you know like a bit of MDF or it can be a strip of wood or a strip of MDF or something solid, you know. So it can't go out, it can't go in. But I mean, there's you, in that case you've only got you've got no points of contact around the arc, around the inside of the arc. That's already said. Okay, so that won't that won't try and like move into a more. It's not going to move as the wood wants it to. You've already done that. So in heating the wood, um, the wood's got moisture in it because I've um, had it soaking in water for about four or five days, at which point it won't really take on any more water because it's not going... You're not filling the cells up. It's just around the cells, around the cell walls. And basically the moisture is just to transmit the heat. And you don't want the yeah. steamer acting like a kiln either. So if you put it just a perfectly dry bit in there, you may be able to bend it, but at the same time it could just dry the wood out even more because the moisture is not getting to the heart of it, it's just cooking it, you know. So yeah. you're actually kiln drying the inside of it and um, it might get a bit carroty when you break it, you know. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you, Bern, um, obviously we've got a primarily Australian audience on the, on the podcast what success have you had bending Australian timbers versus uh, mm. versus non-natives? Good well, um, the chair, the t- the timber that's been used for nearly two hundred years in Australia for Windsor chair making um, is blackwood, Victorian Tasmanian mm. blackwood, and that's a beautiful bender. It takes a little bit of care because it does get very soft, um, so you do have to take care of it. But um, that's a great bender. Um, other great benders, well, would be great benders, uh, alpine ash and mountain ash. Mm. The problem now, though, is that um, these are mixed in with other subspecies, um, and you can't just buy the pure timber that you want, unless you can find someone who's got a mill and they've, you know, um, they know what they've got. Um, and the thing is, they they kiln dry the these things to death. You know, they they mm. cook them really really quickly so that the structure of the wood actually collapses a little bit and then they um, steam it so it plumps itself out again. So trying to bend stuff like that is ridiculous. I I had, um, I sort of documented it a little bit 
earlier this year, I was doing this right. events and um, someone um, up in New South Wales wanted a eucalypt chair. And I'd ne- just never used eucalypt because of that factor. Because normally those two woods, um, regnans, and that, they, they bend beautifully. Like they're beautiful, straight as an arrow, there's big, massive, long trunks, and they're perfect for Windsor chairs. But because of the way they're treated, um, they're no longer perfect for Windsor chairs. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I got through it. So, you know, with steam bending, if something's not working, you think about the whole process um, and just try and change a few things here, a few things there. So I just, I'll make up a whole lot of stock when I'm trying to do it. Um, I always have at least two or three and I try and get them from different um, sticks. So it's not, because right. it could be a problem stick, that piece of wood that from that tree could just be a problem tree, you know, um, or it's been cooked more than something else. So I try and get them all from different pieces if I can. Uh, but you just try different things, you know, more clamps or more steaming time, less steaming time, more compression, that that type of thing, you know. Actually, steaming time is a good um, question I have, I suppose. I, I just have no clue. I've done some steaming um, generally only to steam f- thinner strips so then I could then glue lamb them into a, some, some crazy shapes later. I haven't done any solid pieces. But the actual time in in the steam box have you got any averages on that because i just can't seem to find like i'm just guessing like i'm like i'll try it for half an hour i'll try it for 45 minutes and see what happens i mean is that your process based on the timber you have and how dense you think that piece is or are you just you have Uh, one that you hear is an hour per inch which is it's very general but what i've found is that um it just depends on the species that you're using so um i use air-dried blackwood um, takes on the moisture again fairly well. I, I really don't have to steam that for that long. You know, it might be okay. anywhere from if it's green, it can be half an hour even. Right, you know? and that, and obviously depends on the size of the bend. Um, when I first started bending kiln-dried timber, um, North American species like oak and um, ash and walnut, um, some of them I was trying to bend for like you know steam for three hours and things like that, just <laughs> just working it out. But um, I've lowered all those temperatures now, uh, those steaming times now sort of thing. Um, uh, I'm quite good friends with Pete Gilbert. You know, we've, we've remained friends for over the years sort of thing. And um, he, I don't know if you're aware of him. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He's a bit of a sort of mad scientist of a woodworker. He's always right. hunting through processes. He, he's, that's the way his brain works. He loves doing it. It's his favourite thing. Um, and... When I went over there to teach, um, he wanted to do it in kiln-dried because that's what I was doing at the time back here. And um, right. and people are obviously interested in that because, like in the US as here, uh, unless you're in that northeast corner, you don't have access to oaks and ash green timber, you know, which is yeah. what a lot of traditional um, or all traditional Windsor chairmakers use green timber at some point. They split all the components out of a log Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to work with a draw knife. It's super easy, um, easy to bend everything. It's already got the moisture content in there. Um, so, you know, I was getting people from Arizona, California, um, just all over the place. Last class over there, I had someone from Puerto Rico. And so these oh. are people who don't have access to this timber but want to make chairs. And so they were interested in the fact that I was using kiln-dried timber because the common um, wisdom with that is that you can't steam bend kiln-dried timber, yeah. mm. which which just isn't true, you know. But 
as I mentioned before, it depends on how it's been dried as well. So if the process right. is really drastic, as they have done with um, what they call Taz Oak and Vic Ash down our part of the world, um, it is very difficult to bend. Um, but I haven't had any troubles with bending American ash or American oak or walnut. The, uh, walnut in particular is ridiculous mm-hmm. to bend. It's so easy. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when I did that chair of mine and um, it was the, I mean, the stuff I was getting from was from Bunnings and uh, it was the Tassie oak, whatever it may be. The amount of people that tried to dissuade me from doing it because you, quote unquote, cannot bend kiln-dried timber. It, it just seems to be this end of story, not even a question, cannot be done. That's the, the general consensus. Um, and yeah, I mean, granted, the strips that I was bending were quite thin, but still, um, the stuff that I'm working on now, it's, a, it's you know, I'm building, around, I'm bending around a, a 20 mil piece of timber, and it's fine. It's just, it's that, it was that soaking idea. Well, I, I don't know if it was necessarily your idea, Bern, but that video that you put out with the soaking, that just changed everything for me. You can bend anything now. It brings up an important point, though, doesn't it, in that um, there's lots of different woodworking wisdoms floating around, and um, I think it's... You don't have to challenge everything, but um, <laughs> just challenge it. If you, if you want to make something work, give it a go. You know, exactly. Understand it for yourself. Don't just take it as the gospel. Mm. Yeah, get your own experience in it. No, that's right. And that's all I did with... Um, Kiln dried. I just thought, oh, look, I'm just. I've been told this so many times. I've I've heard myself say it, and so I'm just going to try it out. You know, um, yeah. Well, which I should have done yeah, in my, the first place. So, my first experience with steam bending was I took on a job to make a bent headboard uh, for a lady, a bedhead, and I just ripped some oak, kiln dried oak down, put it straight into the steamer, and bent it around a form, and it worked. So. Like and I was reading at the time. This is probably about eight years ago, and I was reading people at the time telling me exactly that that I can't do it, and it worked. And I got a couple of bits that split or whatever, but I just you know I changed my process slightly, and really just put it in the steamer a bit longer, and um, yeah, I really had no problems with it. So I, from then on, I was kind of like, you guys are obviously not trying to steam bend if you're telling yeah. us we can't do it because it works. <laughs> More people than not will just pass on little bits of yeah. wisdom that they haven't, they don't know for sure themselves. Someone's told yeah. them and someone's told them and someone's told them. And yeah. Yeah. No one's te- checking to see if it's real or not, you know. And, it, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes with woodworking, it can be context as well, isn't it? You know, the timbers that are available to you, the tools that you have, you know, your intent. Um, all those things change from person to person in the woodworking world. So, you know. I, I, I noticed with the oak, whenever I've steam bent oak, I get a lot of tannin bleeding, a lot of discoloration, uh, if it, depending what it happens to touch. Or And do you have any problems with that with other timbers, with, with the amount of water you're you're putting into it? Is, it, is there any problems with it changing colour at all or reacting? No. Look, I mean, I, my bending straps are stainless steel. Right. So it doesn't react with the tenons in the wood. Yeah. Um, if you use general steel, for, you know, particularly for oak, the back mm-hmm. of it will just be black. And yeah. you can cut that away, but you've got to cut away a fair bit. It goes, goes fairly, it almost ebonises it. Yeah, walnuts the same. It, it can go really black as well. Black wood will do a bit of that, a bit of that as well. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so if you use stainless steel, then you're all set. I just use really um, low-grade stainless steel, so it's easy to drill through. 
Um, yeah, it's from right. sheet goods. I just go to the metal um, shop and they cut on these frighteningly big guillotines <laughs> yeah. to whatever width I want, sort of thing. So, and then I just cut the lance, and they're very easy to make the compression yeah, straps. Sure. Um, but the other thing with oak, it, it is a bit trickier than the others um, because it case hardens so readily. Yeah. Mm. Um, and do you, are you all aware of case hardening? Do you know what that means? Uh, I do, I think, but why don't you educate us? Oh, sorry. I, I just, yeah, I just, um, well, it's basically the outside is drying a lot quicker than the inside. So the inside's still engorged with moisture and the outside's drying quicker. So it's got nowhere to go. So it starts stretching around the engorged inside. And so I get all that checking on yeah. oak. Mm. So it doesn't compromise the strength or anything, but it looks terrible if you're making a, a nice bit of furniture. Um, so to go, combat that, well, actually, I, I, I was trying to talk about um, Pete before. He came up with um, this shrink wrap tubing. Oh, yeah, right. right. So um, for the first class over there, so I'll get back to the oak. In <laughs> <laughs> for the first class over there, we're using kiln-dried ash, and um, we wanted to try and bend it without soaking it. Um, and the thing is, when I was there, it was very humid. So the wood was already had a decent amount of... Um, moisture in it and so we put them straight into the um, uh, steamer and pulled them out and put them straight into these tubes of plastic that just at that temperature shrink wraps around it and locks right. the moisture and the heat and so we had infinitely more time for bending because the heat <laughs> like even half an hour later it was still too almost too hot to touch the, the wow. strap um, which was brilliant but um, so I, I use that shrink wrap stuff for the oak and I'll bend it and leave it overnight in that plastic. Right. And then when I cut it off the next day to put it on the um, drying form, it's still soaking wet. It just really traps the moisture in beautifully, you know. Um, but then I'll wrap it straight away in layers of newspaper. So it just retards that drying process, uh, slows it down on right. the outside so that it all dries together, you know. And that, that's really effective. Mm. That's, that's good information, actually. Yeah. So... Bern, you've obviously done some amazing pieces in your time. Um, do you have anything on, on show that people can go see? I mean, do you have anything um, in any exhibits at the moment? Uh, no, no. I'd, I'd like to do some more exhibits, but um, with that sort of thing and, you know, prizes and things like that, because that, that, those types of things can help with PR. Because mm, we're, we're all trying to get our names yeah. out there and that. Um, it's finding the time to do something. So something will pop up say, why don't you enter this? And so I go, well, you know... <laughs> I don't have time to do that. You know, develop a whole new thing that's flashy and I just, you know. I basically design um, around my orders, you know. It can take a long time to get to an end point. Um, every now and then I'll get a commission specifically to, des to design a chair, uh, which is amazing to be able to do that. But more often than not, you're trying to convince a client, well, I am anyway, that, okay, you want this chair, but how about this new armbow style I'm trying out or, you know, and generally people are fairly sort of open to those ideas. Um, so this, like the, I've got a chair called the Coco armchair, mm -hmm. which basically just... I was just about to ask you about that, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just stands for Contemporary Continuous Armchair, you know. Um, so it's, it's based on the traditional New York um, design, the Continuous Armchair, and then... Um, I suppose I have more of an eye for simplicity as opposed to traditional decorative elements, which I can appreciate, but it's not really my cup of tea. Yeah, can you, can you talk us through the process of how you ended up making one for Nick Offerman? 
well, to start with, with that chair, it took over a period of three different clients, I was able to update the different elements on it until I got to the pure cocoa chair, um, which I actually did for that studio furniture exhibition um, in Bungendore that you were at, Brian, the you piece in. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nick, he, um, he contacted me out of the blue. Uh, he sent me a, a text and he said, um, oh, hi, I'm Nick Offerman, an American actor. I'm going to be in your town. Would you mind if I come out to your workshop for a visit? And I said, okay. Via <laughs> <laughs> text? Yeah, text message. Yeah. Interesting. Well, he turns out he's good mates with um, my sister-in-law's um, partner over, okay. over in America. Um, and they ran into each other. Um, and it's just the small world that Instagram makes. Um, he was talking... He's well-known for loving woodwork and doing woodwork and everything mm. like that. And so he's talking about woodworking and um, my brother-in-law, Bobby, said, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a um, brother-in-law in, in Melbourne who... Um, He's a furniture maker. He makes chairs. And Nick just looked at him and said, Burn Chandley? Yeah, so it, it is a bit outrageous. But um, anyway, he, he came out and we had a... He was, he's a really, really down-to-earth, lovely, lovely guy. Highly intelligent, very, very funny. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was really nice to meet him. And he just ordered a chair off me um, after sort of um, meeting up, basically. Awesome. That's awesome. Can you can you talk us through the process of doing that uh, two directional bend or well, like three dimensional but two directional bend of the back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah so uh, normally I do them um, by hand. I, I've always done them by hand. So I've been doing this messy process of trying to bring the winch in because the winch creates a really consistent movement. You know, so sometimes when you're doing things by hand, it can be a bit jerky and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And the wood's just trying to do its own thing and escape. So, you know, the less jerk, the more chance you're going to have a successful bend. So I've been trying to do some sort of thing with the winch, but I think I've just been chasing my tail with that. So that particular bend, um, I hadn't done a compound bend like that in Walnut. So I ended up doing it. I did it a couple of different ways, but the one by hand worked out the best. Um, so basically with that, it's a straight piece of wood, I've already shaped it to some degree because um, it's a bit more difficult to shape afterwards. A lot of them I'll bend in a really blocky sort of form without much shaping and then cut it away later because I can still do that on the bandsaw or, you know, with other tools. But with that one, you kind of have to shape it more or less to what it's going to be beforehand, um, just roughed out lines. Um, so I'll put in the steamer. I've got a strap, a compound strap, a compression strap. So it screws down for the main bend and then changes direction for the arm bends. So I put the whole thing with that clamp to it into the steamer. I'll I'll bend the first, the the main bow, and clamp all that in place, and then bend the arms down one at a time. And and for for that, I um, I used the tubing, the plastic as well, um, because it just gave me more time by hand. Because you're doing three bends, one after the other, you don't want it to cool off too much by the time you get to the you know, the last arm. Um, mm-hmm. And when I said this tubing stuff, I, I had to source it. I had to get Pete to send me some. I couldn't source it in Australia at all. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, you, you can use tinfoil, though. Um, a young guy in Texas um, 
sent me photos of him having used tinfoil, so that's quite effective as well. <laughs> glad wrap, like really strong glad wrap, something, just something yeah. to retain the moisture and the heat. Anything will work, really. Yeah. The shrink wrap's good because um, it goes to the form so you can see what you're doing. Yeah, if it's something really baggy, um, so I know Nathan Day over in WA, he um, does these giant bends for, um, I think they're table stretches, and he uses, um, I think it's a Sue bag, is it? Um, oh, okay, Sue bag. Yeah, that's it, yeah, which they use in cool oh, right. Yeah, and so he has the steam running into the bag the whole time that they're bending it. Which is, oh, I've seen yeah. other people do that for really complex bends where they need quite a bit of time. Um, they actually have steam running into a bag. You can use like a, a vacuum press bag, perhaps, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's very effective. Well, because that's really, you know, you got it at its hottest, um, so you're going to have more fun bending it. I think. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, Bern. I know you've got places to be soon, so. We'll probably call it a show. Um, so to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shopstool Podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out today. And Bern, thanks again. It's been so yeah, good having you on the show. We could, we could have carried this conversation on for, <laughs> for the rest of the day. Yep. Um, no, yeah, look, thanks tough. very much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Uh, and I was chuffed that you asked me. So thanks very much. No problem. Great. Next time one of us is, well, next time Joey or I are down in Melbourne, we'll, we'll come say hi at the workshop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks again, everyone. Take care, and we will see you in the next show. See ya. Catch you.